Our scripture reading for today is taken from the book of John, chapter 6, verses 41 to 59. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, It is not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know. How does he, know say, how does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me, and not that anyone and not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever, and that bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Thus says the Lord. Thank you, Pam. So, Shipta uh, said that we are moving because we value children ministry. Uh, and space for that, that is true, but we also value bathrooms and, um, <laughs> and space for us here to be able to sit uh, uh, appropriately and, and invite your friends to come and more of that. So we, we are moving uh, for that, for our children's ministry, but also for those reasons as well. Um, and just real quick before I start my sermon, I just want to encourage uh, you guys that's been serving at CCC. Uh, I, went, I was at the Mercy Ministry yesterday and uh, again, just like every time I, I, I show up, I do very minimum management, and you guys just did everything. You guys uh, both planned it really well, executed it really well, and I just can't thank you enough. And also this week, uh, uh, I had to take over and lead one of the community groups uh, in central Jakarta, the one in Verde. And um, uh, I just, I haven't been there for a while because there's been other people leading it, but I just didn't realize how much effort <laughs> you guys put into that. It's just a lot of, you know, just the food, the water, Booking the space, the chairs, all that kind of stuff. And it's just on a weekly basis. You guys do that every week. So when I was there, I was just really, really encouraged. And I'm really thankful for all you guys that, that I have the opportunity to labor in the gospel with. So thank you guys, um, for all the community groups and, and all, all the volunteers that, that even set, set this up weekly and all that. So thank you, you guys, for, for all that. Okay? So today, we're going to continue in the book of John. And I think we're going to just go ahead and finish the book of John until we end at chapter 6. Um, and then after we're done with chapter 6, which will be next week, we might consider taking a break, and we might do another book. We might either go back to one of the minor prophets, which is the 12 books in the Old Testament, the last 12 books of the Old Testament, or we might do the book of Ecclesiastes, because Gray and I have decided that our lives aren't complicated enough. Might as well preach through Ecclesiastes. Um, I think it'll be great. It'll be, it'll be a good book for us to study and, and um, for us to learn together. So today is our second to last sermon 
in uh, chapter 6, in John chapter 6. And just to avoid confusion, let's take a quick look, a quick roadmap of where we are in chapter 6. So what's happening in our text? Okay, so apparently there's this conversation happening in our text. That's Jesus having an intense dialogue with a crowd of people. Who are these people? They're the Jewish crowd that Jesus Christ miraculously fed in the beginning of chapter 6. In other words, this is the crowd that Jesus, who, who Jesus gave bread to so that he can meet their immediate felt needs in the beginning of chapter 6. And because these people saw that Jesus was able to meet their immediate felt needs, they praised him. They wanted to make him king. They even followed Jesus all the way across the Sea of Galilee. Why? Because as we saw in last week's sermon, which was the first part of this big conversation, they wanted Jesus to continue to meet their immediate earthly felt needs. Give me bread again. Do this for me. Miraculously meet their felt needs. And Jesus, in this big conversation, rebukes them. He says, you only want me. You only want to use me as a miracle worker to somehow make your problems go away, to somehow meet your immediate felt needs. And in this rebuke to them, he explains to them who he really is. He is God in flesh, wanting to redeem them and meet their eternal need, not just their temporary immediate ones. Okay? So today's passage is the second part of that big conversation. Last week was the first part. This week was the second part. Now, before we jump in, as we study the second part of the conversation, allow me to just say that Jesus' words here are not easy to swallow. In fact, after Jesus ends this teaching, if you read the response from the people, from the crowd in verse 60, you'll see that the majority of Jesus' followers left him. They said in verse 60, chapter 6, verse 60, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And then in verse 66, it says the majority of his followers left him. Friends, the words of Jesus that we're about to study right now are the very same words that caused a majority of his followers to leave him centuries ago. Now, by his grace, we might not have such a dramatic reaction, but still, we may have questions that arise after studying this passage, maybe about his fairness, about his love, about his justice, or perhaps about the level of helplessness Jesus describes as having. Are we really that helpless when it comes to the matters of salvation? It might be shocking to us. But you know, there were a few people who stayed after Jesus said these words. One of them was Peter. And in verse 68, if you read, Peter said this, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed, and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Who knows how one will respond after hearing these words, but I hope and pray that we will respond as Peter did, that the truths about our salvation that we hear from Jesus today will cause us to fall in deeper love with Him. Because if we take His word for what it is, then you'll be in awe of the, love of, of the level of devotion and commitment God has for the salvation of His people. Four things I want to point out. How God draws us to himself 
what happens to those God draws to himself, how lives of drawn people are changed in him, how this bestows all glory upon himself. Let me repeat it again. How God draws us to himself, what happens to those God draws to himself, how lives of drawn people are changed in him, and how this bestows all glory upon himself. Let me pray before we start. <coughs> Father, you have loudly spoken in this passage that effective preaching is not caused by the eloquence of man, but it is caused by your mercy and grace intruding into the sinner's life and redeeming them for yourself through your spirit. And Father, as we attempt to study your words, we prayed for just that, that you would intrude our lives, that you would rattle it, that you would take us for yourselves, and that we may now live lives wholly abandoned for you. By your grace alone can this happen. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Point number one. How God draws us to himself. So last week, we saw Jesus Christ describing himself to the Jews as the bread of life. This was a rebuke to the Jews, right? They came to Jesus only to get physical bread. Physical bread that can sustain them for maybe a day or two. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. I can provide you with a sustenance that can sustain you, not for just a day or two, but for eternity, I have come not just to give you daily bread to meet your immediate physical felt needs. I have come down from heaven to give you the bread of life. And the Jews wasn't happy with the statement. Let's continue in the conversation. So that's how we ended last week, and now we jump into verse 41. This is how the Jews responded to that. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said... Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? They're thinking this person, this person has an earthly genealogy, right? So if he has an earthly genealogy, he must be human. If he's human, how can he claim to be God? God cannot be God and human at the same time. Or at least that was their claim. And this is how Jesus responds in verse 43 to 44. <clears throat> do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now think about it. The crowd asked Jesus a question. If you have an earthly genealogy, if you're a human being, you therefore cannot be God, right? Why didn't Jesus just explain to them the answer to their question? Perhaps logically, in a systematic way, explain the incarnation, how God, being God, being the creator of all the universe, does therefore have authority, power, and ability to put on human flesh without losing any of his godness. Why didn't he explain the incarnation? Why didn't he explain all that? Instead, he just said, verse 43 to 44, pretty much, you know what? If the Father doesn't draw you to me, you will not come to me seems a bit insensitive. It seems a bit um, uncaring. Did, did Jesus not care about this person, about these people coming to him? Of, of course he did. But not only is his response and his statement confusing, it was also offensive. 
a commentator said, uh, this statement is offensive, certainly to the Jews at the time, and to a large amount of the readers of the gospel today. Think about it. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Think about how offensive that is to the human ego. He is saying, if left to their own ability, if left to your own morality, if left to our own sensibility, no one, no one, not one person. In the Greek, no one is ode. You know what that literally translates to? No one. No one can come to me, can receive me, unless, except if, only if, the Father who sent me draws him, calls him, brings him, propels him. That is offensive to the human ego. Why does he say this? Why not give further explanation about the incarnation? Why not give this understanding about the hypostatic union of God and flesh and how that can become one without mixing and yada yada? Not because he doesn't care. Not, beca not because he doesn't He's insensitive to their needs, but because he knew what needed to change in these people's lives was only a change that the Father can do and no words of man can do. What do I mean? Okay. You take a look at the crowd that Jesus was talking to. There's two things that needed to change in them in order for them to receive Jesus. This is going to be a bit of cognitive gymnastics, so follow along with me. I'm not doing this just to be complicated for being complicated's sake, trust me. But I think if we grasp the intricacies of it, we'd, we'd, we'd grasp what Jesus is saying better. Okay? What needed to change in, these, in this crowd were two things that only the Father could change. One, what needed to change was their motivation and not their behavior. Two, what needed to change was their presuppositions and not their logic. I'll get there, all right? Just put that on the shelf right now. What needed to change were their motivations, not their behavior, their presuppositions, not their logic. First one, stick with me. What did the people lack? Their external behavior was fine. If you read it again, I mean, their behavior was, was good, just externally looking, right? They're praising Jesus. They're glorifying him. They wanted to make him king at the beginning of chapter 6. They followed him across the sea. Behaviorally, externally, those were all great things. If those people were at church today, just externally, they'd be applauded. They'd be the ones, you know, doing the things, right? But Jesus still rebuked them. Why? Because what needed to change wasn't their behavior. It was their heart desires that was wrong. They just wanted Jesus to meet their immediate physical needs. They were doing it for the wrong heart motivations. Now, Anybody can change external behaviors. Anybody can do that. A good motivational speaker can do that. But only the Father can change the motivations of the heart, the desires of the heart. Only if the Father draws you to me will you come to me. Because what needs to change isn't external behavior that man can change, but only what the Father can. In this case, not their behavior, but their motivation. The second one. What needs to change is their presupposition, not their logic. Okay, what is a presupposition? Every conclusion that you land on has a logical flow 
and a presupposition. Here's an example of a logical flow. You, I'll, I'll start it and you finish it for me, okay? If A equals B and B equals C, therefore A must equal C. That's a logical flow. If A equals B and B equals C, therefore A must equal C. There's no other way, right? Now our presupposition is each section of that argument, A, B, and C. It's a premise. It's a presupposition. See, now, the Jews here didn't have bad logical flow. Look, look at verse 42 again. A, Jesus had earthly parents. That's what they said. You had a mother and a father, okay? B, everyone who has earthly parents are human. Yes, <laughs> correct. C, Jesus, therefore, is human and not God. Their logical flow was okay. A equals B, B equals C. A, must, Jesus must be human and cannot be God at the same time. But look at C. That presupposition isn't what Jesus says it is. He, the Bible says God can be God and man at the same time. C is a presupposition. And if you have a wrong presupposition, you can still land at the wrong conclusion. Let me just give you another example. I didn't want to get into this because it's too long. Here's an example of another good logical flow that can end up in a wrong conclusion. John is a teacher. All teachers eat mice. Therefore, John eats mice. Wrong conclusion. Correct logical flow. Correct logical flow. Wrong conclusion. Because what needs to change is their presupposition is C. Okay, what needed to change? It's saying this, God, they're saying if, you're, if, if you are human, Jesus, correct, you cannot be God at the same time. That's a presupposition. That's a pre-decided conclusion that they came to. They can't prove that. Neither can Christians prove that. They can't prove that God can't be God and man at the same time. But neither can Christians prove that God can be God and man at the same time. Think about your experience. You did not come to receive Jesus Christ because you heard of some kind of empirical proof about God being able to be God and man at the same time, and this God died on the cross for you, and in his death, your sins are forgiven. You did not hear an airtight argument that proved that to you, an empirical proof that you saw and you felt and said, you know what, now that I've heard this argument, now that I've heard this empirical data, I will decide to receive Jesus. That's not what happened. None of us here have that proof. So why then did you receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior if you have? It's not because your logical flow is fixed. It's because your presupposition that no man can change was redeemed by the Father. No man can change that. No man can prove that God can be God and man at the same time. And, and, and some would say that's irrationality. Some would say that's foolishness. Jesus here says, it's because the Father drew you to himself. He changed not primarily your logical flow. That man can change. Any basic university has logic 101. Humans can change logical flow, but humans cannot change presuppositions. Only God can. Humans can change external behaviors, but no man can change the heart desires. Only God can. You have a genealogy. You're human. How can you say you came down from heaven? You know what? If the Father doesn't draw you to me, you're not going to come to me. That is what the conversation was all about. Because what needed to change was nothing that can be done through human agency, not their behaviors, not their logic, 
but only that 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 father can change, their presuppositions and their heart motivations. Is this mysterious? Yes. Do I comprehend fully the words of Jesus? No. Am I satisfied with what I'm saying? Not at all. <laughs> There's a mystery to it, but this is what Jesus is saying. It takes the Father calling a sinner to Christ for them to receive Christ. Because what needs to change isn't primarily their behavior and their logic, which can be modified and taught by men. But what needs to change is their heart motivations and their presuppositions, which cannot be changed by the efforts of man, but only the Father. This is what it means in verse 45, if you read it in verse 46. This is what it means to be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. We are dependent upon the Spirit to regenerate our hearts and redeem our presuppositions. And unless the Father does this, to repeat again verse 44, no one can come to Jesus. So now, after one's heart motivations and presuppositions has been captured by God, redeemed by the Spirit, what happens to them? Second point, what happens to those God draws to himself? Well, in verse 49 to 51, Jesus continues to describe those whom the Father calls to himself will begin to see Jesus as the bread of life. Unlike the manna sustained, that sustained Israel, the Israelites in the Old Testament for a day or two, remember God gave Israelites manna in the Old Testament when they're walking the desert, that sustained them for a day or two, they will see that Jesus is a source of sustenance that will sustain them for eternity. Let's read verse 41 to 51. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Okay. But how? How is Christ God's provision that will sustain his people for eternity. What does this mean? And the answer was absolutely shocking to them. Even a little bit scandalous. Look at verse 51. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. What? Your flesh? What does that mean? Are we supposed to eat your, your, your flesh? Like physically eat it? No. That's what the Jews thought in verse 52. But Jesus quickly corrected them. So what does it mean that his flesh is the provision that God gave us so that we may have eternal life? It means this. Imagine God who has existed through eternity, a being who is beyond time and physical space, a being who has no physical body, no veins, no muscles, no skin, no blood, no hands, no feet. This being lowered himself, humbled himself, and he put on flesh. And the bread that I will give you for the life of the world, what I'm giving you that will sustain you for eternity, is my flesh. The person you're looking at right now, Jesus says, is no ordinary man. I am God, who is put on flesh, blood, bones, hands, feet. This is what I'm providing you with. Friends, when you think of the gospel, when you think of God humbling himself um, for our salvation, we often immediately skip to the cross. But the humiliation of Christ doesn't begin on the cross. It began when he was born. 
when the all-powerful God clothed himself in flesh as helpless babe, as we sang earlier in our hymn. And the bread of life I will give for the life of the world, the provision I'm giving you this time that will sustain you for eternity is my flesh that I've put on. But why? Why, Jesus? What's the point of you putting on flesh? How does God, assuming upon himself muscles and flesh and skin and blood and arms and legs, how does that sustain me? How does that connect with giving me eternal life? To that, Jesus says, it gives you eternal life because these muscles I now have can carry the cross that you were meant to carry for the sins you committed. Because this flesh and skin that are being ripped apart by carrying this heavy cross would be my flesh and skin and not yours. So instead of rightfully shedding your blood for the sins you've committed against me, I can now shed mine. And what good are these hands and feet, you ask me? They're precious to me. Because now instead of nailing yours into the cross, I can nail mine. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Friends, this is the gospel. God embraced human flesh upon himself so that he can embrace the cross upon his shoulders so that he can embrace you forever. And when the Father draws you to this reality, when a sinner's hearts and motivations and presuppositions are captivated and redeemed and captured by the Father, you know what will happen? Their spiritual stomachs will begin to rumble as if they felt this ravishing hunger and overwhelming thirst that they've had for years, decades even. And they'll start to hunger and thirst, as Jesus says in Matthew 5, for righteousness, for Christ. You know what it is to be really, 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 really hungry? Like so hungry that your stomach's like in a knot and so thirsty. And finally, you come to a restaurant, there's food in front of you. And with some, but maybe very little care of anyone else around you, <laughs> you go to town. You eat it and you drink it and you feast on it. This is what will happen once you feel this hunger and thirst for righteousness that God shows you. You will devour the provision God has given you. You will devour the gospel. Let's read verse 40, 53 to 55. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds, and the word feed here is not eat. In the Greek, it's change. It was eat, and now it's closer to Munch, crunch. Unless you crunch and munch in my flesh, you drink my blood. No one has eternal life. Uh, and drinks my blood, has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true blood and my blood is true drink. Christ is saying, this is what you've been craving for. This is what you've been starving for. You cannot be righteous on your own. You do not have the power to obey me on your own. You can barely keep to your New Year's resolutions. More or less, the holy laws I've justly instituted 
Here is your salvation. This is my provision for the life of the world, the gospel that I have put on flesh to pay for your sins. Grab hold of it. Do not come to this meal gently. Eat it. Drink it. Feast on it. It is sufficient, I tell you. My flesh, torn apart on the cross, has made you righteous. And unlike the bread, the manna of the Old Testament that I gave your fathers that sustained them for a day or two, this bread of life will sustain you forever. So here's the order of salvation Jesus has laid out in our passage so far. First, verse 44. The Father draws and calls us to himself. What saves people is not ultimately human effort. Unless the Father draws you, you cannot come to me. Second, verse 45 to 55. Those whom the Father draws to me will receive this provision that I've given you, will receive this bread of life. And, you'd, and, 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 and this bread of life, this, this gospel, this, this flesh that is torn to pay, you, to pay for your sins and to justify you from your sins, you will receive. And by the way, go back to verse 44 at the second part of it. We haven't talked about the second half. Jesus also says that whomever the Father draws to himself and justifies in Jesus, <coughs> what will Jesus Christ do for them? I will raise him up in the last days. That means you cannot lose this salvation. You cannot lose this salvation. The Father draws you to himself. The Father justifies you in and through Christ. And Jesus will raise you up in the last days. Be glorified in the last days. That's the fancy word to say it. So Jesus is saying here, one more time, summarize. The Father, the Father first, this is the order of salvation. The Father first draws us or calls us to Christ. Then the Father justifies us through Christ and what he's paid on the cross for us. Then Christ will raise us up or glorify us with him in the last days. Let me read again our assurance of pardon today, taken from Romans chapter 8, verse 30. Let's see if he, Paul, agrees with the words of Jesus today. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, I realize this can be a difficult doctrine to navigate through. It was back then for the crowd, and it still is now for us today. There may be a ton of concerns, and, and totally understandable, completely, completely okay to have a ton of concerns of why this doctrine is difficult to receive. Now, I don't have time to cover every single one of them, but our text does talk about one of them. And the, the, the concern that our text talks about is this concern. If salvation is so totally accomplished by God and none by the sinner at all, doesn't this make the Christian lazy? Doesn't this make the Christian just kind of ex excuse their sin? That's a, that's, a, that's a fine concern to have, and we should have it. Let's move on to our third point. How lives of drawn people are changed in him. Some might say, if our salvation has been so totally accomplished by God, that means every part of it was his initiative, then what is my role? Why should I obey him? Why not just lay down here passively, or even worse, if I can't lose my salvation, why don't I just go out and sin? and just do all kinds of bad things. Why, why don't I do that? I can't lose my salvation anyways, right? And, and one might think that wouldn't such a gospel give a Christian the excuse for abusing grace and to live a sinful lifestyle? Well, no, not at all. The Christian who has feasted upon this gospel 
will live a redeemed life, will have a changed life. Where do we get that? Look at verse 56. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, whoever receives the gospel, receives me as Lord and Savior, abides in me and I in him. Jesus is saying, if you partake of this salvation, if you feast upon my flesh, which will sustain you for eternity, you'll be living in me and I'll be living in you. What he's saying is, when the Father draws us to him, when we receive Christ as Lord and Savior, there will be a growing evidence throughout our lives that Christ truly is living in us. Not meaning that all of a sudden our lives are perfect. But if Christ is in us, our desires will slowly change. Our heart motivations will slowly change. Our presuppositions will continually be captured by the Father. There will appear Christ-like convictions in our hearts. We'll want to start living in such a way that pleases our Lord and Savior. Why? Because Christ is in you. Meaning... The Christian who consist, the, the, the person who claims to be a Christian, who consistently uses such a great salvation to excuse immorality, to excuse sinful behavior, the Christian in whom there is absolutely no evidence of Christ in them at all, meaning, let me be clear, their desires aren't at all molding towards Christ-likeness. Their actions aren't at all being animated in the manner of Christ. Their convictions aren't at all developing into Christ-likeness. Must ask the difficult question of whether or not Christ is truly in them. We must ask the hard question of whether or not they have truly feasted upon this bread of life. In other words, whether or not you've truly received Christ as Lord and Savior. For this bread is the living bread. The one who feasted on it cannot and will not remain dead. This is what Christ says in verse 57. This bread comes from the living Father. He's alive. It's provided through the living Son, through me. And whoever feeds on me, verse 57 says, will live because of me. There will be growing evidence of life in you, of a changed life. Martin Luther one of the fathers of the Reformation, I think, said it well. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that truly saves is never alone. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that truly saves is never alone. It will bear fruit. Now, you may have seasons of drought. I do all the time. We may not be growing as quickly as other Christians are around us. I feel like that all the time. But we will bear fruit. There will be some sort of evidence of a changed life. For more detailed and satisfying explanation to this doctrine of Christ being in us and in Him or being united, union in Christ, I recommend you going to Gray's Theological Cohort class called Union with Christ. Um, he'll explain it in a much better and much uh, um, just more exhaustive way uh, than I can. Uh, so go to it. Uh, we're, we're opening up the registrations one more day. Um, I asked him to do that because of this one verse, um, and he kindly agreed. So um, uh, sign up up front if you do want to join and, and get to know more about that. All right? Okay, last point. Let's look at, take a look at our last verse. Where John the author summarizes all that Christ taught the Jews here, 
He does it very skillfully and very artfully in one little sentence. Verse 59. Point number four. How this, how all this uh, thing about salvation we talked about bestows all glory upon himself, upon God and himself alone. So, Jesus just got done describing the totality of our salvation from the very beginning to the very end as being something accomplished by God and not by us. That our salvation was not a result of seeking God out, but it was a result of God seeking us out. Not only was he the one who put on flesh so that he can come and die on a cross and become the substitute for our sins, verse 51, he is also the one who draws us to receiving this. And unless the Father draws us to receiving this, we cannot come to him, verse 44. And as a result of him drawing us to himself, we will receive this gospel, we will feast upon this gospel, and Christ will be living in us. Our lives will change. Verse 56. And then, finally, back to verse 44, he is also the one that will secure our salvation to the very end. Jesus says in verse 44, I will raise them up on the last days. He's saying, my blood is not so weak that it is in need of your assistance to accomplish the purposes I have shed it for. Christian, behold, the totality of your salvation from beginning to end, accomplished by your God and your God alone. Now, all of a sudden, after such a glorious proclamation of the gospel, John decided at the very end of this passage to put in his own words into this dialogue. Look at verse 59. That's not Jesus speaking. It's, it's John entering into the dialogue. After John records this long dialogue, he ends with saying, Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. How is this a summary, this one little sentence? Jesus said these things in, a, in the synagogue he taught in Capernaum. How did, how did this one little sentence summarize all that Jesus was saying. See, back then, the synagogue was a place that people went to to seek God by reading the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, or maybe by prayer. It is where man would go to in order to seek God, perhaps not so different of the reason of why you came to church today. Perhaps you came so that you can seek out God, so you can come to him and show him how much you want and treasure him, which is a great motive. A great reason to go to church. But look at what Jesus is trying to say here. What is the picture John is setting in verse 59? We see here that in a place where man would go to seek out God, they were instead confronted by God who was put on flesh in the person of Christ who was seeking them. They wanted to go to a place to seek out God only to find a God who sought them. There's a quote that a pastor once said that describes the fundamental difference between the gospel teaching and uh, between the gospel and the teaching of every other world, major world religion out there. Now, it's not bad-mouthing other world religions. Every leader from every other world religion would agree with this statement. He's just simply stating the difference. This pastor's statement was, the founders of every major religion says, I'll show you how to find God. Jesus said, I am God who has come to find you. Every other, the founders of every major religion says, I'll show you how to find God. 
Jesus said, I am God who has come to find you from beginning to end. And I hope that's what you experienced today. Perhaps you came to church to somehow seek God, which is great. But today, through his word, I hope you primarily found a God who has first sought you. And as a result of this, you give all glory, all credit, all praise, all splendor of your salvation from beginning to end, every small inch of it to him and him alone. And now the only words you're able to muster up are the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2, verses 8 to 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now let me end with five implications, and then we'll continue in our service. One, the Father's calling still calls for a response from you. I just want to be clear. It doesn't mean that because the Father calls us, it doesn't mean that we're just supposed to like sit here like a statue. No, you're called to receive Christ and, 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 and receive him. Of course we are. All it's saying is that what's happening behind the curtains, that if you do receive Christ, it is because the Father first initiated it, because the Father first drew you to himself. You're still called to respond to it. Two, be very careful in how you use the term seeker-friendly. It's not an evil term in itself, but be careful in how you use it. There's a term now used a lot of, to be seeker-friendly. It's this idea that you shouldn't preach the hard stuff at first, or else people will be scared away, and they'll leave and run away from the church. So don't preach the hard stuff a Sunday morning. Do that at the theological cohorts, right? Not, not Sunday morning. First, you've got to talk about the less offensive, less hard things, doctrines, not about sin and human depravity and, and, and all that. Um, you do that later once people are, and I really don't like this term, but this is what they use. You do it later when people are, quote unquote, hooked in. Be careful with that because that's the complete opposite of what Jesus did here. <laughs> the crowd in this passage wasn't, quote unquote, hooked in yet, were they? But instead of watering down the doctrine, instead of toning down the eternal truths about God's salvation, he actually turned the heat up. He said, you have to, oh, you're confused about eating my flesh? You actually have to munch on it and drink my blood while you're at it. <laughs> he turned the heat up. Why? Why didn't Jesus just lure them in and first, and first talk about the easy kind of nice stuff and then later talk about the hard stuff when they're hooked in? Because he knows that eloquent words and the devices of men is not what will draw people to him. Who will? The Father will. We are called to be faithful, not schemy. Our faithfulness, the teaching of who God is and the great salvation he has offered us should never be watered down. Not in the lyrics of our music, not in the words of our liturgy, not in the tone of our prayers, not in the preaching of God's word. Because what will draw souls to Christ are not the devices of men, but the Father. And our role is to simply be faithful. An old theologian once said, I look upon all the ministries we have today, and all I see are the works of men. May we never fight a spiritual battle with earthly methods.
Three, find comfort in the fact that he is good and just. I, I do realize this doctrine might have sprung up certain questions, most likely about God's fairness, how's this fair, God's justice. And I'd love to talk to you about them afterwards or in maybe one of our point of contacts that we'll have. But, but for now, let me just leave you with this one verse. Genesis 18, 25. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? We have all these questions. How is this fair? How is this just? How? I get that. And I don't know if I can answer all of them. But let me just leave you with this one verse for now. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? answer is he will. There are further biblical reasonings to all this. Um, uh, but for now, um, I pray that you, you rest that, that his infinite knowledge and wisdom is is greater than ours. And that at the end of the day, you will see that somehow his will and purpose is just and is right, although we may not fully understand it today. Lastly, friends, rest and rejoice. Do you realize what Jesus is saying here? He's saying that he loves you so much that he will not leave the possibility of spending eternity with you up to chance. You're too precious for him. He died for you. He made sure to draw you to himself. He will sustain your salvation till the very end. It is finished. And you know what? You may not find yourself that lovable. I rarely do. But he would rather put on flesh and die rather than spend eternity without you. May all glory, honor, praise, and credit of our salvation remain upon the only true triune God and not an inch of it accredited to us or anything else. And may this love now propel you to live a life of holy abandon to him who has wanted you before time began and will continue to love you long after time ends. And he showed you that on the cross. To the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be all glory forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we opened before we studied your word, we don't know how we will respond to this. There's anxiety in a lot of us, perhaps. And in me, my people-pleasing side is wiggling around. And Lord, I pray that you let our hearts be still. You let us rest in knowing that you will have your will be done. And that not the eloquence of man will draw people to you, but your spirit will. And Lord, as we hear of this great salvation, of this great love of the eternal God who paid for our sins and now lives in us as we receive it, let us jump and run back to you offering not our righteousness, offering now, not what we have or can offer, <coughs> but solely upon the blood of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.